Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we're going to talk today about an issue that's actually quite close to me personally. As some of you may know, I've talked about in the past that for four years while I've been here in Vietnam, I, I used to work for a Taiwanese company. And although Taiwanese and Chinese are, are very different from one another, they do share a lot of cultural commonalities, and particularly in the management style. And I worked for this company, and I got to tell you, it really wasn't the best experience in many, in many ways. And I, I will never again work for a Chinese company. I've made that decision after coming out of this. And so my experience working for a Chinese company uh, was not particularly good, in part because I didn't like the management style. I didn't like the communication style. There was a toughness to everything. And so it's understandable to me when I see these headlines, uh, you know, that, you know, Chinese companies in Africa are the worst to work for. They abuse labor. They, you know, they, they, they have safety violations. We see these headlines even coming out of the United States now that the Chinese are investing more into American factories. And again, you know, it's this narrative that's sitting out there and it's just pregnant with potential for people just to believe it. But the question is, Kobus, is it actually true? Does my anecdote that I have, my single story, kind of stretch across uh, you know, all Chinese companies? And there hasn't been a lot of research on this topic until now. Exactly. And this is a problem because Chinese corporate engagement with Africa is, is going to be so important in the future. It's, it's a, very important to try and get some hard data rather than just a lot of stories of, of different people's experiences. You know, and these stories, you know, you can talk to people. These stories are powerful. People, Kobus, you and I have, have seen this in, in person. People will tell you to your face that they know that Chinese companies are employing prisoners brought over from China to work there, and they will have no facts to support it. It's just, I heard, or I see. And these anecdotes are so important in how they shape people's perceptions of, their, of whatever reality they are. And now in this day and age of Facebook and fake news and kind of embedded narratives and you know, all of that, you know, a lot of these things get easily reinforced. So it's so exciting that we're having back on the show today Xander Rounds, who's a researcher based in, uh, in Nairobi, he uh, formerly was with China House Kenya. We've had him on the show before. And together with Huang Hongxiang, who is the head of China House Kenya, which is a, uh, an organization based in Nairobi that for a long time did kind of cor corporate social responsibility training. Now they're doing student programs. Uh, but they're very active in, in Kenya. And so Xander, together with Huang Hongxiang, kind of thought this would be a good idea to kind of compare whether or not Chinese companies are actually better or worse than, in this case, there was a comparison with American companies, but I think we can kind of extrapolate from that into other companies. Xander, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us, and actually I say welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so let me start off by saying that, you know, here's the title of your paper, We Are Not So Different, A Comparative Study of Employment Relations at Chinese and American Firms in Kenya. Before I get into why you chose specifically to compare Chinese and American I want to read your thesis statement of your paper, and I want you to respond. You said, quote, one of the most common critiques of China and Africa is that Chinese firms exploit laborers and undermine labor standards. Are Chinese employers actually worse to their African workers than other foreign employers? Are they? So I guess the answer that I'm inclined to give you is that there's no kind of simple, straightforward answer. 
one of the things that I get into in the paper is when we talk about Chinese companies, there's a huge range of companies that we're talking about. Same when we're talking about American companies in Kenya, there's also a huge range from kind of small startup social enterprises to the big Googles and Ubers. And you have the same thing on the Chinese side. You have kind of the uh, husband and wife firm that's importing goods from China and selling them in Nairobi. And then you have the big state-owned multinational corporations. So one of the big things that I wanted to emphasize was kind of there's a huge diversity and, and there are kind of similarities between um, certain types of Chinese companies and certain types of American companies. And then there are differences between all of them. So it's much more complicated. And also I wanted to highlight the fact that um, we didn't find convincing evidence or I have yet to find convincing evidence that the, the, the nationality of the firm is kind of the primary indicator of, you know, the labor conditions at a particular firm. And Xander, um, you make the, the point in the in the paper that frequently you see similarities in terms of either the sector that the companies are working in or the size and formation of the company. So you would see some some similarities between American and Chinese multinationals and some between smaller American and Chinese firms. What would, if you were to generalize, what would be the differences in in firm size that would actually be the same uh, across American and Chinese companies? I think kind of the, the the biggest similarities are the degree of kind of formalization and and kind of institutionalization of management practices and policies. Um, so, for example, at big Chinese firms and at big American firms, there might be a more institutionalized process of recruiting employees, or they may even kind of outsource all of the employment uh, practices, the day-to-day -day management of employees to a, a third-party firm, which, of course, you would never see at a small firm. Yeah, so kind of the, the level of formality and, and the kind of institutions that are mediating the relationship between management, the, the bureaucracy, basically, which is, is very intuitive and kind of makes sense. I just want to point out that the, the article, and I forgot to mention where people can get this, it's, you published this as part of the Johns Hopkins University China-Africa Research Initiative, which you received a grant for to do this. Uh, and uh, congratulations again on, on publishing it. But if people want to see it, you can go to Cari, C-A-R-I-S-A-I-S. That's the School of Advanced International Studies. C-A-R-I-S-A-I-S dot E-D-U, I think it is, or dot org. Uh, just look that up. If you Google that, it'll come up. And so, uh, but you, 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 did, you, you, you compared Chinese and U.S. firms, not say British or Indian firms. And I'm curious, why did you focus specifically on the Chinese against the American firms and, and, and didn't open it up to other international? I mean, what was the, the reasoning for that? Part of the reason was just kind of circumstance. My kind of social network, the companies that I had access to and kind of exposure to were American companies, given my own background. Um, part of it was because American companies are also kind of relative newcomers to the Kenyan market and in a similar place of like really kind of ramping up investment here, which is different than, for example, looking at British companies, which have kind of a longer history because of the the legacy, the colonial legacy. Um, so that's why we focus on American companies. One of the one of the kind of interesting um, differences that that you allude to, or, or 
you know imply is that uh, you know sometimes Chinese or you know and I'm, I'm kind of reading this into the into the report but um, sometimes Chinese managers tend to come off worse than the American con- counterparts because they tend to speak in a more blunt way um, or they tend to speak in a more racialized way rather you know kind of that that American uh, managers can they, they sometimes say very similar things about Kenyan workers but the Americans say it in a in a much more kind of polite way um, and um, so I wonder did I, did I understand that correctly are, are frequently other complaints about China, about Kenyan workers relatively the same across across these different firms yeah I think that was one of the most interesting things that I found as I kind of dug into the language of the the managers and executives that I interviewed was the language that's used the way the ways that these sentiments are expressed about Kenyan employees or Kenyan the Kenyan labor market were very different, but the sentiments underlying them actually seemed not so different. This conversation among Chinese managers of sujur or or uh, quality of a lower quality um, actually started to sound very similar to the more innocuous talent gap, which. Uh, American managers often brought up in conversations when they were describing why, for example, they might hire a North American employee rather than, uh, you know, a, a Kenyan employee. Uh, so this explicit racialization of labor, I argue, more common among Chinese interviewees, at least the folks that I talk to. But there's a similar kind of implicit racialization, which is kind of underpinning the worldview of many of the American uh, it man- managers as well, and that's why I say we are not so different. Yeah, but Kobus, let me let me kind of just chime in here a little bit because Chinese people oftentimes come off sounding a lot more rude than say native English speakers do when they're speaking English, and that's in part because the Chinese linguistic structure is set up to be subject, verb, object. It, I mean, that's the beauty of Chinese, the elegance of the language, is how simple the grammar is in many respects. I mean, this is not like French or Japanese that has, you know, a million rules. I mean, French, you have to conjugate each verb five times. You know, there's the present perspective. There's all these different, you know, all these different rules. There's huge rule books for French and other languages. The Chinese don't have that for the most part. And so while the elegance is why Chinese is borrowed in many other languages, in Japanese, in Korean, in Vietnamese. Um, When you speak English, Chinese people come off sounding, you know, go there, because in their mind, they're thinking subject, verb, object. They're translating it. Mm. And and what ends up happening is that well-intentioned Chinese people come off sounding like jerks, only because their kind of sentence production process is using that subject, verb, object way. And I think it's one of the problems that Chinese people have when they go abroad is, by definition, they can sound like an asshole very, very quickly simply because of the way they actually communicate rather than what the intent is. Now, put on top of it intent, and we have a bigger problem. So this is where I'd like to get your point here on Xander about comparing my experience. Here in Vietnam, I worked for a Taiwanese company, and the top management was all from Taiwan, maybe one or two mainlanders, but all Chinese-speaking. I was one of only two foreigners, and we both spoke Chinese, but we were highly isolated and marginalized. Um, there was a very colonial mentality to the way that the Taiwanese worked here, where they dined to themselves, 
They even brought in their own Luxgen cars, a Taiwan car. They would work only with Taiwan banks. They would cook only Taiwan food. In fact, the, the senior management of the company would have segregated kind of parties where the Vietnamese senior managers would have their party and the Chinese-speaking managers would have their party. So there was a lot of resentment that built up over, over the years against the Taiwanese for the way they, they, they managed them. I can imagine in Africa, and particularly in Kenya, um, there's sometimes very similar behaviors uh, by Chinese companies. And they do it not because necessarily they're racist or they're doing it because they feel superior, but because it's easier. It's more comfortable to be around people like you who speak your own language. It's, more, it's easier to deal with a Taiwanese bank than dealing with a local bank here in Vietnam where you don't understand there's a lot of corruption here. It's easier to bring you know, your Luxgen car rather than to buy something else that you don't know and have to get it fixed by somebody you don't know. So convenience drives so much of it, but it's misinterpreted as being colonial, as being arrogant, as being insensitive. Is, is there a similar dynamic going on in Kenya or is it different? Similar, definitely. My, my main point would be that that resentment um, that you experienced and has been experienced by Kenyans at Chinese companies for sure here in, in Kenya is also experienced by um, Kenyans working at American companies. Um, so my only point would be it's not, this is not a uniquely Chinese phenomenon. That's one of the, one of the big findings is, for example, a friend who works at an American company, uh, a Kenyan friend, and is frustrated that um, instead of kind of devoting the resources to training her and promoting her, the company just goes and brings in uh, kind of a, a, an American uh, manager to work above her, which uh, she then racializes and interprets as the company would prefer to bring in a white manager rather than kind of investing in my development. That's the truth, um, so, though. The company does prefer to bring in a white manager rather than investor yep. development. Totally. So my only point is um, that this is not unique to Chinese companies here in Kenya, at least, based on um, my experience doing this, uh, doing this project. But Kobus, let me ask you in South Africa, it may be different because South Africa has a much deeper talent pool. You've got great universities like WITS, um, you know, other universities that train people. And so companies don't necessarily need to bring in their own labor, their own managerial labor in particular, because they can pull that locally, right? Would that be different in South Africa than it is in Kenya? Um, there's a, yes, I, I think so. I think, you know, South Africa is just a, a bigger uh, tertiary education system. You know, it's just a, a, a better developed one, I think, or a, a, a more widespread one than, than in Kenya. But also South Africa has quite stringent labor laws, um, and especially labor laws that are designed to try and counteract um, you know, institutional racism that was part of, of South African history. So any company with uh, with large, with more than, than a certain number of employees need to, uh, a, a certain percentage of those employees have to be, have to be South, both South African and black. Um, you know, they can't be one or the other. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a much tougher, um, you know, legislative or po- policy environment, I think, than Kenya is. Um, and for that reason, I think South Africa actually attracting somewhat less business, international business than Kenya, because there is this perception that South Africa is complicated to to do business in. Um, 
Xander, have you, um, did you get any kind of, um, any indication of what, how these companies, both the American and Chinese companies, how they sit in relation to Kenyan labor law? Like, are they, you know, kind of, is, is there any kind of uh, legal, uh, you know, kind of way to deal with, with some of these kind of tendencies to, for example, to hire um, outsiders for senior positions? Kenyan, Kenyan labor law does for example, require a certain percentage of the workforce to be Kenyan. And they also dictate that in order to get a work permit, which is kind of a big pain point for a lot of foreign companies here, and companies are constantly trying to figure out how to kind of get around this, in order to get a work permit for a foreign employee, you have to be able to prove that you're kind of training a Kenyan employee below you who's then going to take over your position. Um, But it seems like particularly in in smaller companies, there are a lot of workarounds and a lot of a lot of organizations and managers will kind of informally, you know, maybe bring in someone on a tourist visa and have them work for a few months and then leave. I think that the, the, the policies are also relatively stringent. And for example, it's there's a lot of conversation about how hard it is to get a work permit as a as a foreign employee. Um, but there are still workarounds. You know, when I was reading through your paper, I something just didn't sit right with me. And, and it, it, you know, and, and I'm going to ask you a very direct question, and I mean no disrespect by it. But it just seems so weird that you are pretty much the only one out there saying that Chinese companies are no better or no worse than working for than American companies. And, and we don't hear that pretty much anywhere else in Africa. And we certainly don't hear it in other parts of the world. And, and I just, I, what, what am I missing here about this? And, and the only thing I can think of, and I was trying to see how would a Chinese kind of company respond to this? And they say, well, listen, you know, you're comparing apples to oranges here. You know, in, in American companies, sure, Google and Nairobi, they give everybody free food and KPMG and, you know, services and tech. That's easy to be nice to people for the most part. But we're out here manufacturing shoes. We're out here building roads. We're building railroads. We're doing hard work with people who have very little education. So therefore, we have to be tougher in order to get them to perform what we need them to do. And, and so can you reconcile that? Can you explain to me how, um, how it is that this paper seems to stand apart from pretty much every other kind of trend analysis or anecdote that people have about working for Chinese companies and conversely working for American companies? Yeah, so I think your kind of uh, rationalization your response is exactly what my response would be. Um, one of the findings in this paper is things may actually be worse at, you know, overall at Chinese companies in Kenya. Um, but if that's the case, it's not something particular about the, the, the Chinese company, but rather the fact that most of these companies are involved in infrastructure corruption. Yeah, sorry, infrastructure construction projects, uh, building buildings and stuff like that. In which that, that the, was, by the way, that was quite a Freudian slip that you put in there, by the you know. <laughs> I know. Why? My apologies. No, no, no. Keep uh, going. I just wanted to kind of make note of that. I couldn't let that one pass. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Anyways, you know, something like two thirds or whatever huge percentage of uh, Chinese companies that are working here in Kenya are involved in some way in in construction infrastructure projects, which you're you're exactly right is going to be you're employing a very different portion segment of the of the workforce uh, in kind of work that traditionally is done in a more informal way. And 
you know, importantly, before it was Chinese companies that were doing these these projects. It was it was you know other foreign multinationals, and I found papers written in you know the 1970s and 1980s uh, with kind of similar critiques of foreign companies. Um, so I guess it, maybe it's not such a satisfying answer, um, and it's a partial one, but it's kind of apples and oranges. I'm just wary of kind of generalizing based on studies that have only looked at mining companies, one or two mining Chinese mining companies, or one or two con uh, construction projects, to then draw sweeping conclusions about kind of all Chinese companies operating in, in Africa. Um, and I also want to point out that kind of labor tensions are almost an inherent part of uh, kind of doing international business. There's, it seems to me like there's always going to be uh, kind of conflicts between uh, foreign uh, kind of managers and local employees. Now, there are companies that kind of mediate that and, and deal with that in a better way. And I conclude that, you know, Americans in general seem to, to be better at when kind of the conflicts manifest at kind of dealing with them and addressing them because, you know, of the communication differences, you know, English being a being the native language of most of the American managers. But it's it's more complicated than it than it appears. That that probably doesn't satisfy you, but no, it does. That's actually. What I got. You know, you make a very good point. Even in my current company right now, um, there's there's not necessarily conflict between expatriate staff and local staff, but there's definitely tension and there's definitely misunderstanding, and that comes from differences in culture, in language, in expectations, in a sense of time. You know, the Western sense of time, particularly the Swiss or the German or the Japanese sense of time is very different than that in Africa or Vietnam. And so it is, yeah, there's tension. Not always conflict, but certainly tension. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's Go a good clarification. And whether or not that tension manifests itself in conflict, I think, may be where there's a, there's a difference between, you know, some of the Amer American managers that, that can sit down with their employees and kind of explain what's going on and... Um, and kind of figure things out, that may set, that may not produce a conflict, um, whereas at a, at a Chinese company, it may end up resulting in a conflict. Um, how do you foresee this going in the future? Do you, do you foresee Chinese companies starting to take on a more transnational kind of management style, um, heading towards in, an, a more American style, or, is, or is, are they going to be mostly stuck in this kind of Chinese style for a while? That's a good question. A lot of the managers and executives that I talk to are thinking a lot about localizing their workforces. And you, you guys have talked about this with other folks on the show. And then at the same time, there, there's a point where some of the managers said to me, like, look, we're just not going to give up that much control. And I don't know if that's going to change. But I guess I don't know that, that, that that's so different than what I saw at American companies. So um, I'm not sure. I think maybe Eric, you would you would have a lot to say about kind of the future and this trajectory. Well, I think in in one sense we have to understand that the Chinese are very new at this. This is the first generation of Chinese companies and Chinese managers that have gone abroad in, in to do the kind of business that they're doing today. The Americans have been doing this now for a hundred years. Uh, so they've learned a lot of lessons. So they've had a head start. IBM has been working in, in, in countries all over the world and has, has built human resources practices, has built up relationships, understands the legal systems, all the things that the Chinese are now learning. 
companies like IBM, companies like General Motors, they've been doing this for a very, very long time. So I'm not sure it's fair to compare a first-generation company and manager going abroad with one that's been overseas for 100-plus years or even 50-plus years. So I think we're going to see the Chinese improve very quickly. There's one very important factor here that I want everybody to kind of focus on. One of the things that you notice when you're around the world in places like Africa, here in Southeast Asia, um, and, and in South America, is there's a whole generation of young Chinese professional managers, civil engineers, industrial engineers, these are MBAs, these are you know, technical engineers, IT support, well, all of these, very highly trained, and they are living these experiences and learning local languages and working in different countries and cultures. I met quite a few here in, in, in Saigon, and I asked them before, where were you? Oh, I was in Bolivia, then before that I was in Zimbabwe, and before that I was... And there's this whole generation of young managers who are being trained with this incredible experience they are eventually going to become senior managers. And they are going to be far more sophisticated. Now, one of the things that I find so interesting is that when you go abroad, you don't see that many Americans for the most part. It's, it's absolutely alarming to me how few Americans are out there learning languages, learning cultures, and even volunteering for overseas assignments. At the World Bank here in Hanoi, the guy's been able to renew here as much of Americans, and they say, yeah, we can renew because nobody in Washington wants to come over here. And you're just like, What? And yet there's this, these Chinese, these young Chinese, thousands of them that are getting amazing experiences. That is going to bear fruit in the future. So I think that in 10 or 15 years, we're going to see a very, very different situation. It still may be tough. You know, Xander, what you were talking about reminded me a little bit of um, the complaints that factory bosses here get. You know, Westerners and Americans are unaccustomed to what factory work actually looks like. So they think that, for example, in China or in Vietnam, everybody who makes their Nike shoes are you know, working in sweatshop conditions, when in fact they're working in factory conditions. And so when people see that in the West, they're surprised. It's hard. It's hot. It's brutal. It's not fun. But these are well-sought-after jobs for people. And I think these construction jobs in Africa and in Kenya are very similar. They're, they're really tough jobs to do. And they require discipline and they require a certain management style that is potentially offensive to, to white people in Western countries who haven't really seen much of that. I also wonder, you know, kind of what, how things will develop in Kenya, um, considering that Kenya is increasingly, as Zander points out in the paper, that Kenya is increasingly this, a center of, uh, you know, of, of regional development. It's a regional logistics center a lot of uh, corporate headquarters are, are in Nairobi. Kenya itself is going through a process of, of very rapid growth. So it's going to be very interesting to see, A, how these different influences shape Kenyan management culture, but then also, you know, kind of how the Kenyans, you know, deal with the system of now suddenly working for lots of foreign companies, um, you know, which is, which is kind of the holy grail for African countries. Everyone is always preaching about how they want more foreign direct investment. But once that investment happens, then it opens up a whole can of worms frequently. And um, so I think a lot of it, a lot of how this is going to go is, is actually going to depend a lot on how Africans deal with these conflicts and, and how they balance, on the one hand, um, worker welfare and on the other hand, economic growth. 
The paper is We Are Not So Different, a Comparative Study of Employment Relations at Chinese and American Firms in Kenya. It was written by Xander Rounds and Huang Hongxiang. Xander is a Nairobi-based researcher and just an old friend of the show, so we're so glad that you were able to join us. And Xander, if people want to follow your adventures in Nairobi and what you're going to do, where can people stay in touch with you? I'm on Twitter. I think it's at Xander Rounds, Z-A-N-D-E-R-R-O-U-N-D-S. I hope you know. (laughs) That's it. Okay. I'm on Twitter. At Xander Rounds. There we go. (laughs) And if people want to find this paper, you can go to carry-sais, that's C-A-R-I-S-A-I-S dot O-R-G. Uh, that is the China-Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins University's uh, School for Advanced International Studies. It's an excellent paper. It really touches on culture, touches on labor. And again, it dismisses these simple anecdotes that people have when they argue with you passionately that, you know, Chinese are doing X or they're doing Y. And I think what we heard from Xander today in this show is that it's far more complicated than it appears on the surface. Uh, So, Xander, we are looking forward to more of your research. We're looking forward to your future adventures, and we're really grateful that you took time with us to to join us for the show. Thanks so much for having me. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.